So I wasn't raised in a family that went to church on a regular basis, that knew the Bible very well. And looking back as an adult, as a follower of Jesus, as an adult, looking back on my childhood, there's actually cons and pros to that. So the cons are obvious. I didn't have a church community. I didn't, wasn't familiar with my God and connection with him early on. But one of the pros is I wasn't raised with this uncanny, intimidating, confusing, and a little terrifying perspective of revelation. Maybe some of you have been raised that way. There may be some visitors here this morning, some guests with us, guests with us this morning that see that we're uh, preaching on revelation. You're like, oh, I came to church, new year, new me, I'm ready for it. And then you walked in, and you're thinking, what did I just get myself into? <laughs> like, what, what, what kind of, you're going to really see what kind of church this is based off of this sermon right here. And what I have found as I've talked with people um, about this sermon series is growing up, it seems like everybody has had somebody willing to give them the secrets to unlock the secrets of Revelation. Usually they use charts and timelines and ever-changing theories of the Antichrist and the mark of the beast to do it. I am here to tell you right at the beginning that is not what Tracy and I intend to do with this message series. This letter of Revelation, it opens with, by saying this is a letter of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to his servants. Now, looking at that at face value, I am a servant of Jesus. You as well are a servant of Jesus. John, who got this vision and wrote it down for other servants of Jesus, the book of Revelation is a letter written to us, written to John, written to the churches. It's written to God's people. And it's important for us to fix that in our minds early on because it's going to be difficult at parts to hold on to the prophetic significance of this book while also gaining personal implication for our life. See, the book of Revelation is often an object of speculation and sensation. We get excited about it and we question it. But the thing about Revelation that I found, and I, as I reflected on it, is Jesus didn't give us the book of Revelation so that he could make us all confused and debate about charts and not really know what it's saying before he comes back. That doesn't make any sense of who we know Jesus to be. It's not like Jesus is looking down on us saying, oh, I just love watching you guys argue about what chart is right and which one's wrong. Rather, what Jesus is saying is, I want to tell you things that will help make your life work. When all the problems that this world sends your way, every kind of challenge that you can face in life, that you will know that there is victory in the end. That you will have confidence and you will see me, you will feel me at the end. If that's the end of all time or if that's the end of your rope, you'll know that I am there. And again, looking at these very first words of Revelation, we get insight into what this is all about. Jesus is revealing himself. He's revealing himself. This is a revelation of Jesus, not a revelation of information. 
It's not a revelation of prophecy. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants of what must soon take place. It is of him and it is from him. And so as we work our way through this book of Revelation, don't be disjointed in your perspective because the world is going to do enough of that for you. You go home today, you tell your neighbors, hey, my church is studying the book of Revelation. They're not going to ask you, oh, what did, Je- what did Jesus reveal about himself in that letter? Now, what are they going to ask? They're going to say, what does your preacher think about 666, about that number in there? Or what about the two witnesses? Or, or when is the rapture actually going to happen? These are the questions the world wants us to know. But the reason Jesus reveals himself is to help us put life in perspective. He says it right here of things that must soon take place. If you read a little bit later in chapter, uh, uh, verse three of chapter one, he says, it is written because the time is near. Now don't let that time language scare you. Right? God's time and our time work on different levels. Time is relative. And this letter is far less about when something is going to happen and rather about the who behind it. And that's what this sermon is gonna be about, the who behind the book of Revelation. There are three things that, as I read through chapter one of Revelation, that I want you to walk away with. Just three things. And I actually want you to write these three things down. If you normally take notes or you don't normally take notes, I want you to write these three things down because these aren't just things to help us grasp onto this book of Revelation. But these three things I'm about to share with you, The three things that we find in this opening chapter, they are going to set you up for the year 2023. These are things that need to be on the forefront of your mind as you enter into this new year. They need to be staples into your life. They need to be stepping stones that you can walk across every turmoil and every raging river that you face in 2023. After we do that, after I give you those three things, we're going to graze over chapters two and three, and I'll tell you why, and then we're going to land the plane. Does that sound good for everybody? Okay, so let's, let's give you these three things. I'm going to give them to you right at the beginning, and then we'll break them down in more detail. So number one, we can never be in a place where Christ's love won't find us. Write that down. We can never be in a place where Christ's love can't find us. Some of you in here need to hear that. You needed to hear that this morning. Number two, We can never lose when Jesus writes the end of our story. Can never lose. There is victory in the end. And number three, we can never face anything God's power cannot take us through. And I'm going to actually spend more time on that third one because I want to give you a statement that's going to help you face any trial that 2023 comes your way. All right, so those are our three statements. You got them. You're going to have more time to write them down, I promise. Let's, look at, let's break them down in a little more detail. So let's go with that first one. We can never be in a place where Christ's love won't find us. Where do we get this idea in the opening chapter of Revelation chapter 1? Well, look at verse 9. If you have your Bible, go ahead. Just look down at verse 9. We're all reading this together. John says, I was on an island called Patmos. Now, in the full context of this letter, John is under the persecution of the Roman authority, under the Roman government. This is the the global superpower during this time in history. 
These are the people that crucified Jesus. John was a disciple of Jesus. Eventually he got himself in trouble. Now he's rotting basically on this island in prison. And I find something rather significant in those words in verse 9. You see, Patmos is not a well-known place back then. It's right here off the island of Athens. Crete is down there. We may recognize some of these names now, but the target is right where it's at. It's just an island among islands. I tried to, we know it now because of the biblical context. So what I like to do is I, whenever I tell people that, oh yeah, our church supports a church and sends people to the island of Antigua, I love watching people that have never heard of Antigua. They reach back into their seventh grade geography class like, is Antigua a place I should know where it's at? <laughs> and that's basically what Patmos is at this time. It's an island in the middle of nowhere. It is less than four square miles big. And John is a prisoner on this secluded island, and Jesus decides to visit him. Do you want to know what that tells me? That you can never be in such a forsaken place that Jesus' love won't seek you, and find you. Some of you needed to hear that this morning because that's the heart of this message. That's the heart of Revelation that Jesus is coming to reveal himself to his people. And you may find yourself in a place of confusion, in a place of despair. You may be isolated on an island of rejection. And what we reveal, what is revealed to us in this book of Revelation, is there's no place in your life. No, no dot on the map that you can be that Jesus' love won't find you. That it won't seek you out. That it won't comfort you and wrap itself around you. If Jesus could find John on Patmos, he could find you wherever you are. Number two, we can never lose when Jesus writes the end of our story. Where do we get that idea? We'll look just one verse above at verse 8. Jesus says this, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is and who was and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Man, we could just sit in those verses for the rest of the morning and that would be enough. This blew my mind whenever I took Greek in grad school and I learned that Alpha is the A in the Greek alphabet, and omega is the Z in the Greek alphabet, right? It's the beginning and the end. We're actually teaching Arlo, my first son, we're teaching him ABCs right now. And just a side note, did y'all know they're actually redoing the alphabet song? Like they've, they've re-sung it, it, has a different melody to it. The, the, the reason they're doing it is because they found that some kids thought Elemino was a letter. <laughs> Like, you know, L-M-N-O-P, and they, they, so what they did is they went in and they reworked the alphabet, and it starts out just the same, but there's a twist in the middle. I'll sing it for you. Here we go. The only time you're going to hear me sing right here. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z, and then you go into the rest. <laughs> Yeah. Some, now, some, I can see all of the old people in here shaking their head, and they're like, this is a slippery slope, right? If you, if you can change the alphabet, what can you not change? Nothing is sacred anymore. 
So we're teaching, we're teaching Arlo the alphabet, and he's gotten some of the letters down, right? He knows O because we, whenever he makes a basket, we, you know, we do the letter O, and he, he screams and he cheers. He knows U because that's similar to O, and that's a lot easier. And then when we get to the letter A, he just says Arlo. So we're working, we're working on that one a little bit more. But we sing the alphabet over and over and over again. We start with A every time. We end in Z every time. And every letter in the middle matters, right? It all makes up this thing we call a language. So what is Jesus saying here? He tells us that our history cannot be written until I, Jesus, have the last word. I am in the beginning, I am in the end. I am the author and the finisher. I'm the creator of all things, and I am the ender of all things. So whatever you are in the middle of that you think is the end of the story, Jesus says, you don't get that right. I get to write the end of the story. In fact, I have already written. Have you thought about that? that those who are found in Jesus, your end has already been written. Jesus has already been there. He's already defeated death, and he gets gets to determine what your end is like. And he says, you're victorious. You have victory. So it doesn't matter what you're going on, what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter how you started. It doesn't matter how it's going. In the end, you are victorious because you're found in Jesus. You can never lose when Jesus writes the end of our story. And then number three, and we're going to spend a little more time on this because we can never face anything God's power cannot take us through. (coughs) Excuse me, that's one of those statements that we feel good about. We walk away feeling good, but then we'll get to Monday, the slog of Monday, or the stress of Tuesday, or the looking forward to the weekend of Wednesday and the drag and the tiredness of Thursday and the boss breathing down our neck on Friday or whatever the problem is, and we're wondering, how do I actually believe that? What's the practicality behind that statement? So I want to give you a statement that's going to help you put this and believe this into practice. But first, we have to look at the end of chapter 1. Because this, the end of chapter one, just go ahead and just go ahead and read some up here. I'm not going to read it. Just start looking at it as I'm talking. This is whenever people are like, oh, buckle up. Here we go. Revelation. What's he going to say here, right? Now is whenever the cryptic language happens. The onslaught of apocalyptic imagery happens. We're ready for the doom. We're ready for the fumes. We're ready for the fire, for the end of the world. But here's the thing about the word apocalypse or the word revelation in the Greek language, it is simply defined as a revealing, to reveal something. So whenever you were unwrapping all of that beautiful wrapping paper at Christmas time, you were having an apocalypse. You had an idea what was under that gift, but until you started ripping that paper off and it was revealed to you, you didn't actually know what was under it. That's apocalypse. And we already know what is being revealed to us in the book of Revelation. We've already said it. Who's being revealed to us? It's okay. It's the answer you can give in church every time it's right. Jesus, right? Jesus is being revealed to us here. And whenever we look at this language, and we're going to break down just one little part of it so I can give you a foothold in this. But whenever you describe somebody, 
do you just talk about their physical features? I hope not. <laughs> I hope people to you are so much more than what they look like. They have emotions, they have personalities, they have history, they have things that they're doing. And the same is true, I hope, about Jesus. So when we look at this, we can't just be thinking of a physical appearance of Jesus, but they're trying to describe something far grander and deeper. Let me give you an example. Verse 15 in here. It says, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Well, that sounds pretty intense. I don't really know what I'm supposed to be imagining here. I want you just to think about it for a second. Those same feet were once wounded by stakes that pinned Jesus to a cross. Those same feet might have been the last thing that his disciples saw as he ascended into heaven. And now they are feet of dominion. You see, the image of brass in the Bible, it's the strongest way that they could depict strength. They would use brass or bronze. They would fire it in a furnace, and then they would shape it to become shield or armor. Right? Brazen gates depict or talk about a city's defense. There is nothing that they could say that has a stronger depiction of strength. And so whenever we hear this, we're not talking about brass feet. We're talking about feet like brass. They are the feet that would stomp the enemy's head, as was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You remember that? That he will stomp the serpent's head and he will come and bite his heel. That Jesus would die on the cross, but he would defeat death in the process. And now those who are found in Jesus, you are given those same feet that you can crush the enemy's head as he sends attacks your way, that you can now walk on the trail that the one who walked before you. But how do we do this? How do we actually do that practically? How do I actually know that God can take me through? How, what kind of faith am I really supposed to have? Because here's what I found. When life turns hard for us, we are tempted to welcome the enemy a seat at our table. But whenever we realize that Jesus actually invites us to follow him through life's hardest situations, then we discover the foundational truth that God's power can take us through anything. And it's that depth of faith that I want to give you access to, that I want you to have something that you can walk away with and begin applying in your life. But first, before we get to that, I want to give you two biblical examples of this. It's all throughout the Bible, but I want to give you two of what this kind of faith looks like in practice, of this kind of confidence that God will see us through. The first one is a story of three Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Many of you are familiar with the story. Some of you in here, I won't assume you are. They lived in a time when the local area was ruled by a king named Nebuchadnezzar, who built an altar, built a golden statue of himself, and had everybody worship that statue the same time every day. Now, these three men, wanting God to be the center of their life, when the music played and everybody else bowed down, they kept standing. They were threatened. The king put them in front of a blazing furnace and threatened to throw them inside if, he didn't, if they didn't start worshiping him. And with the heat beating on their face as they looked at their doom, I want you just to listen to their response. 
if we are thrown into that blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Pretty intense. Now listen to this. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Think about that kind of faith. That's from Daniel chapter 3. Another example, you could take Paul and Silas. They found themselves in prison. What's their crime? They set free a female slave who was under demonic oppression. So essentially they did the right thing, but the people in the city of Philippi didn't think so. They dragged them into a trial where they were beaten, and flogged, and thrown into a prison. And looking down and looking into the story, I don't think anybody would blame them if they decided to throw in the towel right there. I mean, obviously the city doesn't want anything to do with God or what he has, the workings he has in that city. Or they could have just thrown in the faith entirely, like God we were doing your work. We were doing the things that we're pretty sure you want us to do. And this is the kind of treatment that we're going to get. Yeah. I don't think this is, this deal is going to work out for us, but no. What's their response? It's midnight. Many of you are familiar with midnight these days. It was midnight. Their feet were fastened in stocks. Their backs were bloody and raw. And they were singing praises and songs. They were praying out loud. That story is in Acts chapter 16. I look at Paul and Silas. I look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I look at all these people throughout scripture who encountered these intense struggles, and yet they seem to go even bigger with their faith. And I left, it left me wondering, like, how, how do I have that? How do I tap into a confidence that God can bring me through anything? What, is some, what do I need to put at the forefront of my mind? What was in Paul and Silas's head? What were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thinking as they stared into that fiery furnace? And then the answer came to me. It came through the words of the prophet Habakkuk. He says it clearly when he says, Even though the fig tree have no fruit and no grapes grow on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no grain, even though the sheep all die and the cattle stalls are empty, I will still be joyful and glad because the Lord God is my Savior. I want to highlight something for you here. It's two simple statements. And this is not just going to summarize Habakkuk and this story of Silas and Paul and and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but this is going to help us get a foothold in what is happening in this opening chapter of Revelation. Do you notice what I highlighted? Even though, even though, even though, I will still. I want to do an exercise. This side, you're going to say, even though. This side, you're going to say, I will still. Ready? Even though, I will still. Even though, I will still. Thank you. Even though, I will those two phrases lay out a robust cause and effect relationship as an example for us to follow. It's, the, it's what's happening. It's what's happening in this revelation being shown to John that even though I am rotting on an island, even though my God doesn't seem to want to deliver me from this island, even though my life is coming to an end, I will still worship the resurrected Jesus Christ. Even though bad things happen, I will still praise the Lord. 
Even though bad things happen, I will not let my mind be lost to the enemy. Even though I am under intense financial pressure, even though I'm losing the kids to the divorce, even though I'm in a global crisis, whatever yours is, even though I will still worship Jesus. And developing that kind of even though I will faith, it changes the temperature and the trajectory of your life. Because here's what happens. When the pressure mounts around you, this type of faith, it doesn't deflate. It actually becomes bolder, more resolute, more undaunted, more robust. And finally, you get to a place in your faith where God can actually begin using you. When you have your eyes set on something other than the world and what's around you, you have your eyes set on Jesus. And that is going to move us into chapters 2 and 3 the letter to the seven churches. If you're unfamiliar with Revelation, seven local churches are listed and addressed by the resurrected Jesus. You have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I want you to hear, this letter is not written to us. It's written to them. These are their words from Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we can't glean instruction and wisdom from them. But we have to keep all of this in context. Jesus was addressing specific issues to these churches. Just like Paul did to the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, if Jesus were to write us a letter, what would it say? I'm sure it would say some good things, just like he does to these seven churches. But there would also likely be words of caution and correction as well. Let's make it more personal. If Jesus was to write a letter to you personally, what would he say? Where would he praise you? Where would he correct you? What do you need to hear from the resurrected Jesus this morning? And even more importantly, are you willing to do it? You have whole 2023 looking at you. And you get to decide how this year goes for you. Not based on what happens, but on based on how you respond to what happens. What kind of faith you're going to hold on to. You see, the power of words are not in the words themselves, but the person behind the words saying them. And I'll tell you what I mean. I'm going to tell you this story, and we're going to start landing the plane here. For Christmas, uh, our family, we do a name drawing, right? So instead of buying everybody in the family a gift, we buy... We, we draw a name early on, and then we get that one person intentional gift, right? Super easy, super cheap, way cheaper than buying everybody a gift. It's great. So the person who drew my name was my brother-in-law, Eli. Many of you know him. He was an intern here a couple summers ago. And whenever it was my time to be presented my gift, he presented me a certificate. Pretty cool. It had uh, labeled on the certificate, a bunch of all fancy writing, and labeled on that certificate was the plot number of a piece of land that he bought me in Scotland. Whoa, okay. Some of you are thinking like, that's a good gift. Ah, I like this, okay. The problem is the plot of land is literally a square foot. <laughs> like I can literally stand on this corner and you could cut this corner, it's about that big. It's about enough to plant a tree on, which is what he did. He's like, hey, I bought this land for you. It's in Scotland, you have a tree on it. And now some of you are thinking like, what is, the, what the point, what is the point of all that? <laughs> Why do you have a piece of land that you can't do anything with? You'll probably never visit in Scotland. 
Here's why. The true gift is that if you are a landowner in Scotland, regardless of how big the plot of land is, you are enabled to receive the title of Lord or Lady. So yes, I am officially Lord Peyton Menzemeyer. Yes, you can applaud now. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I know. It's pretty great. Darian's not the biggest fan of addressing me as my Lord. But listen, sweetie, it's on paper. I mean, look at it. It's beautiful. All right. So I don't know how true it is that I actually own a piece of land in Scotland. Uh, maybe it's true. I don't know. But a piece of paper does not convince people that to start addressing me by this title of Lord. If you want to, I'm, I'm not going to argue, but it's not going to convince many people because it's the authority behind the words that matter more than the words themselves. Right? So the one speaking this letter and these words is far more important to us than the letter's content. Now, I'm not saying that the content is unimportant. But what I want to do as we end our time here together is I want us to lock our eyes on Jesus. Not these churches, not the words of the churches, on Jesus. Jesus tells us exactly what to lock our eyes on about him. The end of chapter one, he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This serves as an on-ramp into not just chapters two and three, but the rest of this letter. If you remember anything, about the book of Revelation. You must remember these words right here. There are plenty of excellent commentaries and books that you can read about the rest, about uh, the book of the seven letters in chapters two and three. In fact, what I'm going to do is every day this week, this next week, on the church social media page, uh, I'm going to post a video about one of the churches. I'll give you some of the stuff that I don't, ha I don't have time up here to break down for you. So if you're interested, you can go on our Facebook page. You can find it there. But what I want us to do is just sit in these words and lock our eyes on Jesus as we close out here. Because to truly know Jesus, you have to learn to linger with him, to be with him. And if you read about these seven churches of these next two chapters, what you'll see is that they stopped lingering with Jesus. They were like Martha in the story of Mary and Martha, you remember Mary sat at Jesus' feet. Martha ran around frantically trying to prep everything. That's what these churches are doing. They're trying to please God with what they do, please other people, please themselves, and their eyes left Jesus. Lingering with the Almighty is the best defense you have against the enemy. Here's why. Because your eyes leave the enemy. You're no longer looking at him. You're no longer questioning all your shortcomings. You're no longer piling on the shame on your back. You're keeping your eyes locked on Jesus. You don't need less of the world. You need more of Jesus. And there is a difference between those two things. Those are two separate actions. You don't need less of the world. You need more of Jesus. And if you think they're the same thing, I want you to hear these words from C.S. Lewis. He points out that so many people are focused on lessening their desire of the world, yet, quote, 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it meant by the offer of holiday by the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Tell you a story. This will be the, the end of our time together. Tell you a story about this invitation that I got to really experience God and to bring all of this and wrap it up of what a revelation is. I know I've told this story before, but it's worth repeating and telling it again. Whenever Arlo, my first son, was born, I did everything to prepare myself for fatherhood. I read multiple books. I prepped our nursery. Uh, I, we took online classes. I, I even began spending more quality time with my family just to like build in that habit, like more quality time, more family time. But when Arlo was born, and I locked eyes with him for the first time, and I heard his cry, I absolutely lost it. I mean, I literally had to like hand him off to his grandmother so I could bury my face in Darian's lap and sob like a big baby. That's what happened. And absolutely nothing could prepare me for what it meant to be a father. And I laid in bed that night, and I was, I was praying, I was talking to God as I was falling asleep, and I just asked, like, God, what are, were you trying to teach me today? Like, what was that all about? Like, what do you want me to see? And here's what I think God told me that night that he just kind of put on my mind. He said, Peyton, you learned something powerful today, right? You learned the difference between knowing a lot about something and genuinely experiencing something up close. Like, you came into fatherhood with information, but today, you caught a glimpse of a revelation. See, that night lying in bed, God made it clear to me that I have a choice. You have a choice. We all have a choice. That you can know a lot about God. You can come to church your entire life. You could read the whole Bible this next year. You could pray even every single day. I spent eight years doing higher education, knowing a lot. I know a lot about God. But it wasn't until I experienced fatherhood that I learned the difference between knowing about something and truly knowing something. And that is the invitation of Revelation. If you come to this book looking for information, you're missing it entirely. You've missed the entire point. Jesus is here to reveal himself to the world. He is the resurrected Lord. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And as we continue studying this book, here's the invitation. Keep your eyes locked on Jesus. Don't take them away. Keep them on Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for the gift of our Savior, your Son. Father, you gave us absolutely everything by sending your Son here for us. The Father, as we move into this book of Revelation, it is tempting, it is tempting to get into all of the theories, all of the timelines, all of the charts, all of the wondering of what this means. So God, I hope, I pray that Tracy and I will do a diligent, diligent job of revealing what Revelation is about. But God, 
more than anything, if we know anything going into this book, it's the most important thing. That it's not about the content of the book. It's not about the, the what or the when or the where. It's about the who. It's about who spoke these words. It's about who is Jesus, the resurrected Lord. God, I pray that we will have the faith of Mary as we work through the book of Revelation, that we will sit at the feet of Jesus, that we will keep our eyes locked on him, that we won't worry about having less of the world, we'll worry about having more of Jesus. Father God, I hope that we can live a faith that lives out these, these three principles that we talked about, that we can't, There's nothing, anywhere we can go, we're never too lost not to be found by Jesus. Father God, that that anything we face in this life, that you can get us through. God, I just pray for that that kind of hope in this world. That kind of faith, that kind of assurance. So Father, this this year of 2023, it's here. Even this church, we're going to reveal plans. But God, I pray that if any resolution is held, it's kept, is to keep our eyes locked on you. We say this prayer in the name of our Savior Jesus, who gives us it all. In the name of his name, the church said, amen.